Welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Thank you for joining our podcast today. We have our guest, Brian McKinley. And Brian, let's talk about two related issues that linger in our mindsets that hinder the way we see our world and our communication with others. And this is the topic of presumption and projection. Presumption and projection, in my opinion, are debilitating behaviors that are so ingrained in our habitual ways that if we even recognize them as flaws, it's very difficult to change it. What is presumptuous behavior? Let me kind of go through that as my thoughts reveal what it is to me. Presumption is when you observe someone else's behavior and you have a negative feeling or thought about it. When you're presumptuous, you may think, well, how stupid was that? How inconsiderate? Loser? Really? These are common comments that we have sometimes after we observe someone else's behavior that we have these reactions. We may have a look of contempt. We may find ourselves laughing at the person or having a non-verbal disapproving gesture like rolling our eyes or shrugging our shoulders or making a hand gesture. And we may have a disapproving posture. We may excel with a disapproving sigh. It's kind of interesting. We have a tendency to make an observation and then we have to make a choice. Sometimes we make this choice in a split second and we don't even think about it. But we make an observation and we immediately go to having a critical negative presumption about it. Then again, after having this negative presumption about it, we may then express our thoughts and feelings out loud. This is when our presumption turns into projection. Now we're projecting and spewing out our negative opinions all over someone else, whether the person wants to hear it or not. To me, presumption and projection are character flaws, and gossiping about what you know about another person and telling others about it is also presumption and projection. Well, this is a nuisance behavior on both sides of a relationship. It's unhealthy for the presumptuous and projector to be in a mindset where they're having that response to another person. And this relates to judgment, which I'm sure we'll get into in the coming weeks. This is without knowledge of what the person is going through, what information they've been exposed to, what beliefs they're bringing to the table, their negative experiences in the past. So without any knowledge of those things, we make a preemptive strike to quickly assess them, assess their behavior, assess their idiosyncrasies or their thoughts, and then to then attack with projection. And I like that you pointed out that gossip is a form of projection. But we can also do this directly to people and say, I think you're wrong, and it's not in good faith. You know, there's a difference between good faith critique of someone and then when there's an agreement-based relationship, you can make these good faith critiques about people who you're close with. 
But a projection is not based on an agreement, and it's not coming from a place of good faith. It's more or less an attack. And then conversely, that's not good for the other person, because then they feel attacked, judged, and unsafe, and that relationship starts to break down because they feel they can't have a good faith conversation. Exactly. I have an example of a student that came into my class after a weekend of being out with her friends. And she said, Dr. McKinley, I think I finally figured out what presumption and projection was. I didn't believe it before. I didn't think I ever did it. And then here I was, I found myself going to the movie with some friends. And we were sitting in the movie waiting for the movie to start. And just before it started, three or four girls walked in and one of them was dressed very provocatively in very revealing clothes. And she said to her friends, kind of under her breath, but enough that her friends could hear it, slut. And she said, I was surprised by how fast I went to that. As soon as I saw her, the word slut fell off my lips. It was like it happened in a millisecond. It didn't even really give much thought to it. I just said it. And I realized that as soon as I did that, that was presumption and projection. I presumed something about her that I really didn't know. Then I openly projected it out. And she said, that really caught me by surprise. And I said, you know, it's possible that that girl who walked in, that you identified the way you identified her, she just happened to be, she was going to meet up with her friends to go to the same movie you guys are going to. And her friends were running late and she was running late. She was in a play that she just completed where she played a prostitute in this play. So she had to quickly leave her event, get in the car, run over to the theater and go to this movie, really preferring to change, but found herself unable to change in the time frame that she needed. So you don't know anything about that story, but we're quick to presume and quick to project. It's just amazing to me how fast those presumptions and projections fall off our lips. And we just don't give any thought to them. And it's something that's deep down inside of us, in our subconscious, in our beliefs, that cause us to respond in that way. So for me, I find myself projecting, making presumptions, when I think I know what's best. I used to have this mindset, I think I know what's best, therefore I should tell you. Well, the therefore I should tell you is another presumption, as if you need to hear it or as if I'm all of a sudden the wisest person in the world, and that you really even care. So for me to presume and project, I used to do that more when I really felt I had all the answers and I knew what was best. I had it all figured out. When I had a belief that I'm right and you're wrong, I would find myself projecting onto others. You need to hear what I have to say. And I always thought that my help was being helpful. And in many cases, it was not. When you're not invited in, when you don't have an agreement, like you mentioned, an agreement-based relationship, then your help is not being helpful when you sit there and presume and project. Yeah, and that's a belief that it's not helpful. And I agree. I believe that's true. But isn't it bizarre how lots of people who are projecting in that way will justify it? Like It's easy to justify judging or presuming about a stranger because, what, we don't know each other, I don't know them, they don't know me, and they're not even going to necessarily hear my 
projections or my presumptions or my judgments about that. Right. But when you're projecting at a person that you're in a relationship with, we have this odd justification for it. Like, well, they need to know what I think. I've been educated about this and I've read a lot about this and I know better than they do and I need to tell them what's up and that kind of thing. And it could be evangelical. It could be on any subject. It could be a parent to a child. A parent is projecting onto their child. I mean, what about situations like that where the person has, I guess, the best intentions behind their projecting? Well, I have a couple examples of that that I think bring that point home where I ask us to really think about that. And one of them is, is your help always helpful? You know, the story of the monarch butterfly, the little boy asked his mom if he could take the caterpillar that was in his chrysalis and put it in a jar so that he could watch the butterfly grow up and turn into a beautiful butterfly from his chrysalis inside the jar. And the mom said, well, yeah, we can do that. Well, the boy became impatient and wanted to help the butterfly get out of the chrysalis because when the butterfly started to struggle to get out of the chrysalis, it was tearing it a little bit and kept sticking out a little foot and trying to break open the chrysalis and get to where he could come out. Well, what happened, the boy decided that he was going to make it easier. He was going to help that little butterfly. So he took a little sharp knife and he cut the chrysalis open, which allowed the butterfly to come out with ease. What shocked the boy was when the butterfly came out, the butterfly had underdeveloped wings. They weren't fully formed. There was no color. There's gray wings. There weren't the beautiful colors that you see in the butterfly wings because he was helping the butterfly get out of the chrysalis. The mother, in her wisdom, took the boy to a college professor and asked the college professor what happened to the butterfly because the boy was so sad that his butterfly didn't turn into a beautiful, beautiful butterfly. And the professor told the young boy that it was important that the butterfly go through the struggle of coming through the chrysalis because that's when the blood would pump into the wings when he tried to stretch. It would pump into the wings and fully develop the wings and give it the color. So it was very important that the butterfly go through that struggle of life coming into the world to become as beautiful as it could be. Isn't that a lesson of life sometimes that we look at this as parents? We're so often wanting to slit the school experience with a thin knife and we go in and we become helicopter parents, we become lawnmower parents and we go in and fight our kids' battles and we do things for them. We make the projects easier for them. We smooth the way for them. Are we really causing damage to our children when we cut open their chrysalis and make it easier for them? You have two children, Brian, that you're raising. What's your thought about making it easier for your kids, and what does that cost them? I try not to make things easier for them. I let them get away with things that I'd rather not permit. It's hard to fight them on everything. They get pretty argumentative, pretty combative. It's interesting. I observe people projecting at my children. I observe other adults making presumptions and then projecting at my kids. And I mean, everybody from grandparents to teachers to aunts and uncles and even strangers will make odd projections. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm fascinated by. And I have chosen 
not to intervene in a lot of those circumstances. I just kind of let it be because I just think to myself, well, they'll figure out eventually that that's just where that person is coming from. It doesn't necessarily indicate anything true, and it may or may not mean that they need to make an adjustment in their behavior, and I just let them figure that out on their own. And kind of to your point earlier about projecting, you're kind of saying that some people might think of their projection as advice. Like, oh, I'm helping you out. And it's like, okay, maybe, but maybe you should also just let the person learn. And the reality is most of us, adults included, not just kids, all of us, have a tendency to kind of shrug off other people's projections. Unless you really hold that person in high esteem, you're not going to tune into that projection very much that they're throwing at you, whether they see it as advice or whatever. That projection, you're going to do what you're going to do. Most people don't listen to the projections of others. So it's really the vain effort. I mean, I can tell my kids till I'm blue in the face with my last dying breath, hey, when you shoot each other with Nerf guns, you got to aim for the body, or I'm going to make you wear eye protection. Don't aim that Nerf gun at my face, because if you hit me in the eye, it's going to be bad. Aim at the body. Well, they don't listen to those projections. They have to get hit in the face, and someone has to get hit in the eye and have that real-life lesson, because projections don't work. Only real-life lessons work in terms of getting you to think differently. There's a book written about that for two young boys who were 16 years old, 17 years old. You know them, Brian. You read the book. In fact, you communicated with them a few years ago, Alex and Brett Harris. They wrote a book called Do Hard Things. They were very much in the same boat of that. They said, you know, parents need to let us do hard things. And the only way we're really going to develop into be contributing adults into society and to really be able to handle the challenges of life is as we handle the challenges of teenage years and childhood and we have to work these things out ourselves and we need to do hard things that develop our skills and ability to critically think and make decisions. So it's been an issue for raising children for a long time is dealing with this presumption and projection that we place on our kids instead of being good teachers of good wise counsels and developing their thinking and developing their ability to think things through. So, Brian, any comments about reading that book that you read a few years ago, Do Hard Things, by Alex and Brett Harris? Yeah, that idea has really caught on in lots of different arenas as well. And some people might recognize the name David Goggins. Some people might recognize uh, the name Jordan Peterson. These are just a couple of thought leaders who put it out there that it is healthy to struggle. It is healthy to put yourself in tough positions. Do the harder workout. Go harder, go longer, go faster. Push yourself. And that scar tissue is stronger than the old tissue. You've got to kind of toughen yourself up a little bit. And that's difficult for me, difficult for a lot of people, I think, but people that can hack it really benefit from doing hard things. 
And one of the hardest things is focusing on yourself. I mean, not in a narcissistic way, but focusing on self-correction. In other words, managing the log in your own eye. It's so peculiar. It's so much easier in our heads to look at the speck in our brother's eye and project our judgments and presumptions. And it's so easy to do it. Why is it so difficult to turn inward and say, what am I doing that needs to be different? How can I grow? How can I improve myself and stop worrying about making sure everybody knows my opinion, knows where I stand, telling this guy off and giving this person the what for, and having a different approach to life. For sure. It's interesting. I see this dichotomy playing out between behavior that is shooting on people and projecting onto them what we think is what they need to do and giving them our point of view. A lot of people like to call that constructive criticism and people think that's a good thing. We have a tendency and we've seen this happen more and more in our society today and it's always been there, but it's reached new levels of usage and how we label people to try to minimize them. We use labels like idiot or stupid and dummy and crazy, inconsiderate, selfish. And those are words that we used for years and have always been there as attempts to assign judgment on other people. And then lately, in more recent years, we've, we've been up the ante of some of these terms, and we now use labels like homophobe or racist or sexist and wokeness. There's always seemed to be new ones coming along that are designed to pigeonhole a group of people or a person, make them less than as we exercise our constructive criticism, giving our opinion about their behavior that we don't like. And it's a huge difference. And I think there's something that is at the core of the mindset of the individual that finds themselves continuing to do that. What would you say would be a core belief or value that a person has that can so easily let labels fall off their lips and be so critical of other people? What are they believing? What are their thoughts that they have in their mind that causes them to do these things? Well, I think it's an arrogance. It's maybe a self-righteousness that I know better and I am better. And I think that a reasonable or logical person has to really look at that and break that down a little bit. Because, well, it's arrogant and if you have a desire to be more relatable and have better relationships with people, then that arrogance can be very dismissive and a turnoff. Whereas if you're trying to have good relationships and attract people to you, you have to start viewing people from the highest to the lowest as real people. And every time that you put up one of these names, and you start calling people names, whether it's a bigot or a slut or a Nazi, or maybe you tie them to a political party, whatever it is, this is a straw man argument. This is a logical fallacy. 
and you're dismissing their realness and their actual personhood and replacing it with this idea of, well, they said this once upon a time, so they're a bad guy. Or, you know, they dress this way, so they're obviously not qualified to work in business. You make these presumptions about a straw man that you've built in your head. And I would say that you have to change that principle, right? I'm hoping to hear one of your I will principles sound something like, I will see every person as a unique individual that I can get to know. And if I get to know that person, maybe I'll find the real person there instead of poking fun or thinking less of this straw man that I built in my head. I can get to know a real human being and see all of their ideas and where they came from, how they learned what they learned and how they came to believe that dressing this way is okay, and how they came to believe that this lifestyle is good for them. You're never going to access that if you continue to just live by the logical fallacy of, oh, that person is this in this category, so I can't trust them. And those are negations in a way, instead of invitations to people that you could potentially learn from or help to grow or even just make their day. Well, you know, Brian, that's a great belief and precept that you mentioned as a way to begin to reverse some of these thoughts. This is really a big thing for me. I did a lot of presuming. I did a lot of projection. I mean, I really thought I had it figured out, you know, and I just didn't give other people the room or the respect or the place to have their own viewing point if I observed it to be wrong. I observed it to be different than I thought it should be. And I wasn't afraid to talk about it. So one of the things that I've done, and I've been saying these for years now for myself, is what I think of other people is none of their business. I really keep it to myself. In other words, it isn't my business to tell people what I think of them. Unless I'm invited in, unless I have an agreement-based relationship, unless they ask me specifically and say, what do you think of this, Ray? It's none of my business. I should not go there. Even though I thought it, I now pause. I call it the power of the pause. I talked about the student. Her conversation was, I never understood the power of the pause until I looked at that girl walking into the theater and the words that fell off my lip in less than a second. It was split second. Slut. It happens that fast. And I could relate to that. And it's that millisecond that we have to need to check off and have the power of the pause where we say, wait a minute, I don't know the story here. Maybe I should ask some questions. Maybe I should go up to her and just talk to her and see what's going on. Not with any judgment, but just to have a conversation and find out what the real story is, if you even care. But if you do care, then ask to have a conversation, be Socratic, ask good questions and give the person a chance to respond. Otherwise, I keep it to myself. This is another one I came to believe. Constructive criticism is destructive. I never found constructive criticism to be constructive. I've always found it to be destructive. However, as long as I had an agreement and the person wanted to hear it, then that is when my criticism or my observations could be constructive. And there's a place for that in our relationships. 
but it's important that we get to that place that we have that agreement before we just do it in every turn. You know, I find myself affirming and finding ways to elevate the esteem of other people instead of finding ways to knock them down. This is a big one for me. I had to make a decision. Would I rather be right or would I rather be in relationship? And that was a huge one for me because I found my need to be right was hurting my relationships. So I made a decision and a belief that I'd rather be in relationship than be right. The other thing that I really found myself conversing with other people when the opportunity came, I wanted to make my help helpful because help is not always helpful. So I always found a way to get clarity on what other people believed and valued by asking questions and saying, what do you believe? What do you value? But there's ways to ask that without saying, what do you believe? What do you value? Just find out more about the person instead of hoisting my beliefs and values on them. That's what I used to do. So I no longer hoist my beliefs and values on others. I talk about them because I'm in a relationship with them. And when I teach in a class, we have conversations about them. When I write a book, we have conversations about them. But I don't intentionally hoist my beliefs and values on other people unless they're asking specifically about what I believe and what I value. And I think that's a huge thing. I always remember that curiosity and asking questions is the antithesis of presumption and projection. So what about some of those beliefs and precepts that can start causing us to stop being so presumptuous and projecting? Yeah, those sound like major thought upgrades. The default response is to make a presumption about strangers and then sometimes project at strangers and also to make presumptions and project at people who are close to us. It seems to be the default. You can upgrade to, well, I might have some presumptuous thoughts, but I'm not going to project it at strangers. And I might have some presumptuous thoughts about my friends and family, but I'm only going to project it at certain people at certain times. Well, then you can upgrade from there and say, you know, I'm going to have my presumptions I'm never going to project to anybody. Then you can upgrade even further to, I'm not even going to have presumptions anymore. I'm going to wipe my brain clean every time that stuff comes up. It's like a windshield wiper, like bugs hitting the windshield and it's just constantly spraying, wiping, spraying, wiping, and getting those projections about both strangers and people who are close to you getting that out of your mind and just not even thinking it to begin with. Then you can upgrade further to what's the question? How do I get to know this person? And what is my intention in asking these questions, getting to know them, looking for ways that I can build their esteem. And this doesn't apply to everybody. It's not like you're this guru, this Tony Robbins type character who's just going to intervene in the lives of strangers on the street by getting to know them and affirming them. I mean, you could do that. That would be an interesting lifestyle choice, but most of us don't have the time and attention for that. So it's like the final upgrade would be to the people who are close to you in your life or the strangers that reach out to you for a relationship or reach out to you for help. Those are the people who you then say, okay, I'll let my boundary down a little bit. And as long as you're not a dangerous person, which a good self-defense class will help you 
identify dangerous people. I'll let my boundaries down and get to know you. And the projections and presumptions never even crossed my mind because I upgraded my thought processes from that default setting a long time ago. Most of us, it would take a lifetime to do all those upgrades, but it is possible. Yes, it is. And I think it needs to have a personal intention on doing so. I want to bring up something else as it relates to this, because it's hard to have this conversation without recognizing what's happening in the world today. I've observed, as I've talked about this topic, we are at a place in our public discourse that is at its core presumption and projection. And <laughs> it is at an all-time high. The imposing a set of rules on you that I don't even follow myself, this is happening more and more. And the hypocrisy is mind-boggling. Yeah, the woke culture and cancel culture is a form of projection. That's what you're talking about. That's presumption projection, yes. Yeah, it's rampant right now in our mm -hmm. culture. Yeah, and it really creates a venom, a poison in the conversation, which is very hard to navigate through. It's very hard to have this conversation of, well, let me hear what your point of view is. What is the long-term effect of this point of view? And if we, in fact, did this as a public initiative, what would be the cost of this? Let's look at the history, too, and say, what has happened in the past when we've seen these kind of behaviors play out in other countries? What has been the end result? It's like even to have a healthy conversation or a healthy debate. There's no debate anymore. The debate was the taking ideas and exchanging ideas, and the strongest ideas rose to the top and carried the day. But it's no longer that. It's not about a debate of ideas. It's about personal attacks, dehumanizing people, making it less than, calling them labels that are very difficult to recover from. It's very difficult to recover from the label of being a racist. And the poison that is created in the public square as a result of this extends down into the family units. I come from a large family. I'm one of 12 kids. And when we get together as a family with the kids and the cousins and the nieces and nephews, there's difference of opinions on these things of the direction we were going to go in the public arena. But now relationships have ended in families where families can't even get together. People won't even come to Christmas, won't come to Thanksgiving, won't come to Easter because they don't agree with the political view. What's interesting before years ago, I mean, I had different political views of other people in my family, but it never became such a hot item at the dinner table or at the holiday, because we were focusing on the holiday, not on everyone's public opinion. However, because of Twitter and social media, a lot of us know what other people are thinking. So we come to the event knowing the poison you post on social media, or what I say is poison, and I don't agree with. So I'm walking into the front door of my family event, ready, charged, I'm prepared to go to battle to anybody that wants to confront me, and I'm going to confront the person that I read on the social media, like, do you really think that? That's crazy. I mean, what are you, a racist? When you start hearing those things at a family function, it's really unfortunate that we've got to a place in our public discourse that has now even gone into our family discourse that is so damaging and so loaded with presumption and projection. Yeah. 
I mean, in the virtual world that we live in, this can happen in a family video chat, but it can also happen in an email. You wake up one day, you got an email from one of your brothers or sisters or nephews, you know, just telling you off about your political beliefs or your religious beliefs or all of the above. And it doesn't feel good. If the person is reaching out for a dialogue, then that should be conspicuous. But it doesn't often seem like this is a dialogue-oriented thing. This is a projection thing where it's just like, I'm going to tell you what. And I don't care about a dialogue because I've already made an assessment about your beliefs and values. So I don't care to hear from you what you think. And I'm just going to tell you off in the form of an email and then go into hiding. I think we all have moments of intense belief and intense passion where we tell people off. In my experience of having done that a handful of times over my life, it never goes well. It never feels good. It never creates growth other than to have reconciliation afterwards. But it's always embarrassing. And it's hardly ever constructive unless both parties can turn it around later. But to enter into a dialogue is always constructive. It's always potentially beneficial. So the dichotomy there is maybe a little hard for people to see if they're entangled in a lot of passion about whatever the subject is. But I couldn't agree more with your assessment of this phenomenon. I'm young still, and I have noticed a change Mm -hmm. in my three decades of life from when I was younger to now. And as a little aside to this, for a while there, we had this cultural conversation about the idea of a safe space, you know, having safe spaces on college campuses where people of a certain demographic maybe could go and feel that they were safe there. And a lot of people really poo-pooed that idea, but I always kind of cringed when people would go after the safe space concept because I'm a proponent of the safe space. A family reunion, in my opinion, is a safe space where we don't talk about religion, we don't talk about politics, we talk about the meat, we talk about the side dishes, we talk about what's for dessert, and who won the volleyball game, and that's the focus. And it's a safe space for family time. But the issue is, if you are only ever creating spaces that exclude debate and constructive conversation, there has to be a safe space also for debate. This is a no-holds-barred space. This is an unsafe space. We're going to come and we're going to have a vicious debate about whatever topic it is. And then there's church. And then there's family dinner. And then there's the work day. And then there's work meetings. And then there's going to the bar and getting drinks with your friends after work. There's all these different spaces that we go into. And those spaces are meant for different types of conversation. And a real devil is someone who goes into every one of those spaces with their opinions and their projections to try and win whatever social crusade they're on. Yeah. And nobody likes that person being around. Everybody likes to be around people in a space that have an agreement about what the space is for. So there is a time to have these political debates. It's not at the family holiday party. And I agree with you there. 
And I'm concerned how this is going to fall back onto the family units, into the bar talk at the end of the day and the businesses and stuff, because it's already happening now that it's affecting the conversation in businesses, just this conversation around Disney and some of the controversy they've gotten into because they've decided to wallow into the public discourse on issues which they're now having a hard time navigating through. When another company like McDonald's, who the CEO says, these are things we avoid constantly. We do not go into the public discourse when it comes to these hot political issues because we can't win. We're going to offend half of the people that we serve. So we're seeing more and more of that play out. And I think what scares me a little bit about this is we talk about presumption and projection and what it leads to in our mindset because we're so impatient and so intolerant of other people who have a different viewing point. Now that you have the federal government and the political power that's in power right now is now talking about having censorship in the form of a ministry of truth, where they assigned a person to head up this ministry of truth. Well, (laughs) to me, that's craziness because there's never one truth. There's more than one truth when it comes to these kinds of things. And those Two truths need to be debated, or six truths need to be debated. And then everyone should be able to set back and say, okay, I believe this and I believe that. But then if you openly express in the public forum that you have a different viewing point than what the Ministry of Truth has deemed to be right and truthful, you're going to be sanctioned and censored and criticized again. So now we're up in the ante even more. Now we're going to have an absolute truth that's going to be determined by some minister of truth. Then this, again, goes into this presumption projection issue that we were talking about. Is Orwell's book, 1984, coming to fruition here? Right, that's what I was going to say. It sounds like something out of an Ayn Rand novel. It's like a crazy thing. Yeah. I'm inclined to resist it at all costs. Yeah, but the person has actually been assigned and appointed. And the pushback is heavy, but the push forward is heavy too. So it's crazy what we're coming to. I think it stems down to the individual. I think what we're seeing happen culturally here falls back down to the individual character of people. We need to go back and look at the cost of presumption to our mindset, to our psyche, our way of thinking. What are the core beliefs in our mind that causes us to go presumption and projection. It's when I believe that I know what's better for you than you do, I am now going to say it. And if I get the power over you in the form of legislative, governmental control, I can force that on you. My belief is better than yours now. That's a sad thing. And as we allow that to happen, we lose our freedom because we're not going to have the freedom to respond in the way we want to. Not all countries have been formed this way, but the United States has been formed on the the prospect that we can have difference of opinion. We can come into the public square and respectfully debate those opinions. But as soon as we have one viewpoint that now is going to be forced down the throats of everybody else, this sounds more like Marxism than it does a free country like the United States is. So I think if we don't pay attention to this reality, we're going to let the elites, and you talked about the arrogance and the self-righteous, and I call those the elitists, because they're arrogant and self-righteous, because they have a belief about the way you should think, 
And if you don't think this way, we're going to force you to think this way. And if you think differently and you post differently in a public square, because now we know what you think because you're putting it in social media, we're going to sanction you. You're going to censor you and knock you off the platform or worse than knocking off the platform is now having your family and friends come at you negatively with presumption and projection, because now they know that you have this feeling or you have this belief that's going against the grain of the established ministry of truth's position. And it's crazy. I mean, I think Nazi Germany, I think of communism, I think of socialist countries, that this has all happened where the ministry of truth has power over what everyone else thinks and can say. And that's a scary thing to me. Yeah, it's a terrifying thing. And again, kind of to my safe spaces conceptualization, I just so believe that there is a time and a place where people can get together and tell each other their little lies. But in the broad public forum, we have to be able to put up some of these hard, difficult truths. There has to be a space for confusion. There has to be a space for difficult conversation. We don't have that. We're not going to grow. It's interesting, the cost of freedom. We have to sacrifice certain certainties and cleanliness. We have to sacrifice our freedom from crazy ideas. We have to allow there to be crazy ideas, and we have to sacrifice that on the altar of freedom because freedom is so important. But there has to be different spaces. Disney kids' cartoons are no space for sexual education. A young children's classroom, like a kindergarten or first grade classroom, is not a place for explicit sexual education. That comes later. And Disney should be making R-rated cartoons for adults to put whatever they want to put out there. But traditionally, they have made cartoons for children. And that is a safe space for children's ideas, basic morality. We don't need to be having conversations about transgenderism and sexuality in that space because it's a safe space for children, and children are in a pre-sex world. That's what we've all kind of agreed on in our society, right. is that children should be living a pre-sex life and understanding different aspects of the world, but when they get older, we transition them to different levels of understanding. And I think there should be a PG Twitter. Elon Musk just bought Twitter. People are freaking out about this. I'm all for a PG Twitter and then a Twitter for everything else. That's, you have to contend yeah, that's a with discussion. difficult ideas in order to be free. Right. Yeah, that's another topic altogether. It ties into this, but we could go on and on, especially when we bring up Elon Musk and all these other things that are happening in the woke culture. However, we are cut short of time, Brian, and I want to thank you for being a guest here, and we'll continue this conversation next week. Thanks for joining us for Ride the Elephant today. Have a great week, everyone. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to 
ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. 